This episode is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm your host, Gazelle Amani. On this week's show, we'll talk about how religion has been handled on TV through the years, and one of the most thematically religious shows on TV today, The Leftovers. What'd you do? Attempted murder. What happened? Well, didn't try hard enough. That's all coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, please email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. As usual, we're here with Vulture TV columnist Margaret Lyons and TV critic Matt Zoller Seitz. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Last week, we had asked people what shows they're show divorcing, and mm-hmm. we, we got some responses. Ooh. I thought we could start off with that. Yes, please. Excellent. We got Castle, all Ryan, all Ryan Murphy shows. Also fair. Masters of Sex. Oh yeah. yeah. And Homeland. Those were the most Yeah. I'm I'm right I'm up at that line right now for Homeland of like, is this still gonna be a show that I care about? I mean I'll probably still watch it for professional purposes, but right. I was not into the season premiere at all. I've seen the next two. It didn't really change how I felt about mm-hmm. the direction of the show. Yeah, I feel very burned by Homeland. <laughs> I don't know. But did you, you also felt that way last season, didn't you? I felt, yeah, I, this is not a new sensation. Mm-hmm. I certainly, I felt like I stuck on longer in season two than other people did. I think yeah. other people had like immediate, very negative reactions to season two. And I liked it for a lot longer than I think other fans did. And then I just sort of, season three, I thought was a disaster. And season four, it was like, oh, I'm actually not that interested in a straightforward espionage show. Yeah, like, that was my reaction too. Like I can, you know, I've I've watched Twenty Four, and I've watched other sort of like young blonde cop who does things her way has a crusty older mentor, wise but also at conflict with her at some levels, and their competing wisdom plays out in sometimes violent ways. It's like okay, well, I I actually am not in the market for a show like that. Yeah, I, I've seen a lot of shows like that, and I'd rather rewatch dead like me to watch you know a mandy patinkin mentor role kind of thing like that to me is a lot more fun i'd rather re-watch that than continue with this kind of story that just doesn't hold any appeal to me especially because the first season and a good portion of the second season held so much appeal to me and was so interesting yeah. and it had so its much moments. going on it had its moments and it continued to have its moments in seasons two and three and four but there weren't enough of them for me that was that was the issue and and i've said it before on this program and in you know, on Vulture and all over the place, probably walking down the street, going to the <laughs> deli. But uh, they had a they had a great one season anthology or miniseries type program at Homeland, and the decision to extend it beyond that was, in retrospect, a mistake. And there was a certain kind of train wreck value in watching them try to extricate themselves from the mess that they had created in seasons two and three with these characters, and and they did it. I feel like they did it, but the result was they emerged from the wreckage, and what they had was, as you said, Margaret, uh, an espionage show. 
and it just didn't seem as remarkable as that first season. I, I mean, don't I think know. once we had Brody and Caracas, it was like, oh, we're never coming back to good. Like, we'll yeah. never really have the sort of narrative density that the show once had, which I loved. I'll also say Castle, I feel that. Like, I think for a lot of these very long-running shows, like Castle or Bones also, that feeling of like, hmm, how long... How long do I love you for? Like, yeah, like yeah, there's yeah. so much. And I mean, with Homeland, it's understandable why they keep it going because it feels like it's still Showtime's most successful show. I can't really think. I mean, it, in terms of the volume of people watching it. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, I mean, I also think Showtime's legacy of keeping shows on for a long time is clear, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, I think Dexter is a show that had way, way more seasons than than it really had in it. Yeah, Weeds, I feel the same way about. Yeah. Um, it's a good show. I don't think there should have been as much of it as there was. Yeah. So I think yeah. the idea, like, oh, why is Showtime like keeping Homeland around? It's like, well, that's what Showtime does. What else have they got? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, they, they do have. Fair. They do have other things. They they, have to a, be fair, yeah. you, you know. But but currently, yeah. It's still I, their I also the it's their Walking Dead. Yeah. The, mo- the most recent season of Masters of Sex was a real heartbreaker for me because that's a show yeah. I that has such high highs. You know, I think season one had sort of a slow start for me. And then once it really, like, locked in, especially on Margaret and Barton, right, we had Alice and Janney's character. And we had so much about, like, right, like, making the show about, like, sex qua sex is kind of dull because everyone's going to have sort of their textbook medical understanding of sex and then their sort of personalized understanding of sex and sexuality. And, and a show articulating those ideas is never going to be that interesting but it's interesting when we have sex as stand-in for what as stand-in for self-worth as stand-in for identity as stand-in for intimacy right and so when we have all of our characters talking about what their sex lives means it's a reflection of how they see themselves how they see the world what they think other people are trying to get from them or what they think they're able to offer other people and once the show locked in on that it became a lot richer for me and i think a lot more interesting but then they just can't always find that story and instead it's like I feel oh, like they I'm, got... I'm a grouchy genius doctor, and I'm meeting to <laughs> a lady, and she's the nice one. But also, we're both bad, and it's just like I. That was the working title of the show, here. actually. Yeah. <laughs> like for something that's such an interesting setup, I feel like they're just it, it, from throwing reading, pages out the window. From reading the recaps too, it it seems like there's a lot more interesting stuff going on in the actual history that they're not putting in the show, yeah. which makes it always more frustrating when you're like, you have great material to it's work with. It's a serious with. problem, and I feel like they, I feel like Masters of Sex, after season one, I feel like they got roamed, if you know what I mean. Like mm. like what happened, in, you know, <laughs> yeah. or Carnival. Or Carnival. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's like it's like where a network says, hey, we love you. We're on board in theory, but you're not performing at the level that we want you to perform at. Can you please speed things up a little bit? Can you please add a little bit of more excitement or jeopardy of a traditional sort? Because it's not really doing it for us. And what you get is a sort of a time frame compression or even jumble where you're sort of like, how old are these children anyway? What year is it? And, and why is this happening so quickly? And other things seem to be happening at a glacial pace simultaneous to the things that are happening too quickly. And Yeah. You know I mean, I think I mean? for Masters of Sex, this season in particular, it really struggles with telling you how much time has passed because they're saying that, like, we've been doing this for 13 years. And it's like, okay, then why are you still doing the exact same shit? Like, every, <laughs> like, they're, right? And it's just like, oh, if I read this scene, it would easily make sense in season one. Our characters haven't 
develop. There's no forward momentum at all. And, you know, this is something we return to a lot. Like, well, do people change? And is it important that characters change? Uh, it's not that, like, oh, I used to be, like, a mean grouch, and now I'm planting sunflowers and, like, enjoying the world. But but we want to see that, that some... It's possible for things to have an impact and that that we're formed by our experiences in some capacity. And this whole season of Masters of Sex could have been season one. It was the exact same fights, the exact same conflict, the exact same like emotional thrust of every possible move. And so when a show is telling you no matter what happens, we're always going to come back to this stasis, it's hard to care about any of the things that happen because it won't have any lasting effect. That's the basic series TV problem so many shows struggle with it and I and I'm sympathetic to it because the makers of a show don't always know what's going to work either you know like they may have an idea of it and sometimes the network is not wrong to say speed things up can we add a little add a little sex add a little you know jeopardy to this please but sometimes they are wrong and sometimes it ruins what makes a show special and it's just so impossible I mean and at, <laughs> at least with at least with a feature film a standalone feature film it's it's you know 90 minutes to three hours long, and if you get it wrong, that's the end of it, and everybody can move on with their lives. But with, with a TV show, you're committed, and I feel I feel it's not like uh, they're not being paid well. You know, that's some compensation, but the idea of being tied to this thing that you know is not quite working in the way that you want it to, but you got to keep going for three or four more years, oh, my God. So depressing when you put it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's why I'm such a big fan of the anthology, the series anthology model where the unit of measure is the season rather than the episode, because mm-hmm. I just think it's a great way to keep everybody excited, keep everybody focused, and also put some limits on the story. It's like we have this season that is 10 episodes or 13 episodes or 24 episodes or whatever it is. And when we're done with that, we're done. And there are going to be certain thematic similarities and maybe some recurring characters and situations that link it to previous seasons. But it's not a direct continuation. And therefore, there's not the, like all the moving pieces aren't interlocking in quite such an intimate way where, where you move, you change one thing and it's and it's going to irrevocably alter the course of what happens for this character next season and the season beyond. And also, if you have a, a, an entire season or just a run of episodes that kind of suck, you can write it off like a bad investment and just start over. <laughs> and that's great. And it's just it's got to be such a relief for, for people who make shows like that. Not that there aren't crushing pressures of other kinds on them, but at least you don't have to worry, like, if we have a bad season, are we going to have to spend the next two seasons apologizing for it? So now we know that we got divorced from. I'm curious if other people have shows that they can't believe they're hanging on to. Shows you thought <laughs> you, like, swore you would get divorced from at some point, And for some reason, you're just still You're, you're in denial there. still. Yeah, I feel like I'm that way right now with um, Project Runway, a show that has had a real, that's like a, a rich tapestry, right? Like there's a lot of different, <laughs> there's a lot of different stuff that's happened over the course of Project Runway. And I, I still think of it as one of the all-time great reality TV shows. Totally. I think I picked it as the, the season one was the, my winner last year for a reality TV bracket. It can be extraordinary. Recent seasons, not so extraordinary. I think the idea to make it a 90-minute episode is... Mm, has mixed results and this season in particular is just like bafflingly bad to me and it's like it's poorly cast the judging seems weird it seems very phoned in all of the challenges are like very sort of comparatively like low budget kind of it just feels very like last gasps and yet I can't stop. I, wa- I mean, I, the idea of like, oh, well, then stop. It's like, well, I can't well, stop. Well, especially with a show like, <laughs> like, that's not one of the, that's not on the table. With a show like that, do you hold out the hope that, you know, the next season will recapture your 
your interest in a way that it did previously? Or do you feel like it's been on this downward trajectory for um, a while? I mean, the downward trajectory is there with like a couple of blips, certainly. I guess I just can't imagine like how sad I would feel if somebody was like, oh, you're watching Project Runway and be like, no. <laughs> Like I would, I, I need to know, you know, like I want to know what's happening on that. I still like care about it for some reason. So I'm curious if there are shows that anyone else is hanging on to longer than they expected to. I don't know if there's one that I'm actively continuing to watch, except for Homeland. I continue to watch Homeland. <laughs> I do continue to watch Homeland. And I think it's mainly for Claire Danes and Mandy Patinkin and the rest of the actors. And also sometimes the mood. Sometimes they can still pull off that kind of icy, menacing, trance-like kind of thing that they do really well. Like, they, mm-hmm. they are very good with that. Those scenes, like, they, they, they clearly have watched a lot of Michael Mann films. That sort of pulsating, synthesized, trance-like action scene. And then it ends with some kind of horrible, horrible act of violence. You're looking at it through the cracks in your fingers, you know. They're still good at that, even though the show mostly sucks now. I I, I keep watching for that. But the big show for me in recent times, it's not on the air anymore, was Glee. I watched every episode of Glee. Wow. I adored it. And and there were times, and I used to watch it with my daughter, and we had kind of the same attitude towards Glee, which was like four-fifths of the time we're watching Glee going seriously, (laughs) seriously, seriously. And then there would be this sublime moment, like absolutely out of nowhere, what kind of a mind could conceive of a, of a sequence like that or a gag like that or a shot like that or whatever? And then all is forgiven briefly. And that's what I live for. And it's really just it's almost kind of pathetic how I continue to watch that show and <laughs> and and be excited. But again, it's also kind of a testament to the sort of television that Ryan Murphy makes where. Ryan Murphy just seems like he doesn't care what I want. And I respect that. I, res- I always respect that in a TV show or a movie. I wish he were a little more focused and, and, and disciplined and that there were more evidence that he had thought every little detail out before he started shooting. But on the other hand, the sort of t- slap together quality of the storytelling on his shows is, is part of the reason they're so exciting. Mm-hmm. Like you really do feel like he's making it up as he goes along. Like it's like he's like a, like a Chevy Chase kind of character you know what are you going to do today we're going to do a thing with a, this and a you know it's kind of goofy he's writing it in his mind <laughs> as he's walking to the sound stage like I don't know if he actually operates that way I would imagine he doesn't but a lot of times the shows feel that way American Horror Story is like that too I still watch American Horror Story the first season was crazy fascinating I don't know if I would argue good necessarily but the the sheer audacity of it appealed to me and I like the fact that I, all the way they didn't tell you that it was going to be an anthology till they got to the end yeah. I thought that was great it was like and and I can't I've never ever had that experience as a viewer where you get to the last episode of the first season and you're going what the fuck are they going to do what are they going to do they've killed everyone there's like two <laughs> characters left and then they kill those people too and they're all dead and it's like was, there's going to be a season two how and then they then they pull the rabbit out of the hat and say it's an anthology the next <laughs> season will be a completely new story and it was like yeah yes. also i mean season one stuck the landing in this way that nobody saw coming so it was great the first many episodes like up through episode like eight or nine you were like this is a fiasco like it was f- like crazy and it was like oh man this is like super spooky and there's like like, it's very twisted. Like, this is obviously very imaginative. There's nothing like this on television. But, like, it's like it's a mess. Well, let me... And then, it, like, mm-hmm. I feel like it came together in this way that we were like, 
oh, shit, like there was this planet afoot. And that made me much, much more convinced that like other seasons could be good. Well, the way that they that they elaborate on the, on this idea that the dead are not dead in the sense that we often think of them as being dead, but they're sort of like in an alternate plane of existence. And they're interacting with the living and like ghosts can not only talk to the dead and interact with the dead, they can have sex with the dead and have, you know, like the dead (laughs) and the living can have children together. And it's like, what? (laughs) And this is actually something that's not a huge shock to people from other cultures, but being raised in the, you know, the kind of white Christian Protestant tradition, this was like, what? Can you do that? Really? And that was that was all great. I love that. Let me ask you a question as someone who never watched this show because I thought it would be too scary for me. What would you say about, you know, people who are too scared to watch the show? That's don't, correct. Don't, <laughs> is it a correct? I would say don't that watch, is absolutely don't correct. watch okay. the show. Because, I mean, I'm going to watch Hotel, but I know it's an anthology series, but, like, do you feel like it adds something to have seen the first season for people who are just going to start watching now? No. I think it adds, the only thing it adds is a certain appreciation for the actors. Mm. Because you have the same actors coming in. You have the in. same actors playing different characters, or at the very least, they have different challenges, like different, often physical challenges. And I love that Jessica Lange played four completely, like, over-the-top characters. They were all over-the-top in their own way, and they had, you know, their own accents and their own ways of moving and their own way of responding to certain situations. And, you know, that's fun. They are like series of stage productions. Like, I use the phrase floating repertory company a lot in my writing about that, about all of Ryan Murphy's shows, and certainly it is a bit like watching a theater troupe in your hometown where you see the same actors over and over in similar parts, and the plays are always in a certain vein. You know what you're getting if you mm-hmm. go to a certain theatrical production company. That's the mentality that they have, and I like that. I like that a lot. If you're sensitive to scary things, though, it's very scary, and yeah. like I'm extremely... Like, but- I, the only reason I watch a show is because part of my job is to write and talk right. about it. I don't like being scared. Scary I don't like scary movies. A... I don't like I'm, I don't like I'm horror a... stuff. I don't like stabbing. I don't like any of that. I don't, I don't feel I'm like a... it's scary in that way for the most part. Occasionally it is, but more for me it's just more revolting and disturbing. Yeah, see, I'm like okay a... with disturbing, like yeah. The Leftovers, which we're going to talk about. I'm okay with that, but like when it's kind of like slasher movie, like this kind of violence... I just can't handle it. Oh, that. well, then okay, you, yeah, definitely, you definitely don't want to be watching uh, Right. This, this is not like a <laughs> penetrating psychological thriller. No, I mean, this is there a, it, are it, episodes it, where there's like interesting mind games afoot, but there is a lot of, certainly in, in Asylum, it was a ton of body horror. A lot. Like um, David Cronenberg. Like, yeah, like really, okay. You know, the first alien, like stuff on that level. Okay. Where it's, yeah. like, it's like the idea, it's not just the image that's disgusting, it's the idea of what's going on. Scary masks, chainsaw Sharp stuff. inhalation I mean, of breath it, like gazelle. Like, it, if you're even a little, like, I don't know if I like that kind of stuff, this will be upsetting to you. Like, And I think the merits of the show, while many, probably don't totally outweigh if you well, have a distaste for I that I made myself that. watch Hannibal, and I felt it was worth it in the end because there was so much else <laughs> going on that I felt I... You know, I felt it was worth it to put myself through that torture. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I I don't know. I guess I might try out Hotel and see if I feel it's worth it. We'll see. I'll report back. (laughs) Coming up, we'll talk about religion on TV and The Leftovers. But first, a quick break. This episode is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. 
Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, we're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. So religion on TV is such a big topic. I first wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, whether things have changed in how we present religion on television. What comes to mind is the era when we had like Seventh Heaven, Touched by an Angel, Joan of Arcadia. I believe these were all on television around the same time. Do you feel like there was something going on in television where there was more heavy handed religious themes that aren't present anymore or... Was um, that just I actually I'm surprised that there's not more religion on television mm-hmm. considering the religiosity of American culture, the percent of Americans who say they go to church every week, the percent who say they pray, the percent who say they have like a close personal relationship with God or identify God as a meaningful figure in their life. That's a very high percentage. And yet on television, we very rarely see people participating in in religious services. If you think about families on TV who go to church, for example, right. like The Simpsons, the Taylors on Friday Night Lights. But overwhelmingly, we don't see families on television go to church or to temple or to other religious services. We don't see people go to prayer meetings. We don't, you know, we don't mm-hmm. see a tremendous amount of that compared to how common it is in American society. I mean, I feel like we see it more on cable than we do on network, except a recent example that comes to mind is Jane the Virgin, which deals with it in more subtle ways, but it's more integrated into the narrative of like who these people are. Blackish actually does that, too. Mm. I feel like... The reason why we don't see more explicitly religious material and characters on TV is because of cost-benefit analysis, which is people who are religious will will watch and listen to and otherwise experience popular culture that has nothing to do with religion because they're used to that. And that's just the way they've ex- sort of accepted that American life is. Like, it's not going to cater to an important part of their life, and they just have to deal with it. Whereas art that is explicitly religious or that acknowledges religion in some way and and even more so suggests that there is a god or some kind of higher power or something, that's an immediate turnoff for people who don't believe that. Like, I think people who are agnostic or atheists will actively not watch a show where characters believe otherwise, whereas the reverse is not necessarily true. Right. That's That's just been my experience. I could be wrong about that. And I know there are uh, individual exceptions, like, you know, as a critic, of course, I've watched a lot of shows where there are characters who are religious because I like the show and I'm writing about the show. And also I grew up in Texas. So, you know, it's a whole different ballgame. Um, <laughs> but I think for a lot of viewers, that's not the case. Like they were not going to watch a show that like uh, Touched by an Angel or, or Highway to Heaven. Mm-hmm. Those were huge, huge, huge shows. Like they were huge shows, but they had a complete monopoly on people who wanted to see a show like that. It wasn't like they were an across the board hit with, you know, atheists and agnostics. It was like, we have a hunger for this type of entertainment. Where can we go? Well, there are two shows on a major network that are 
presenting the kind of story that you want to see, well, then I'll definitely be watching every episode right. of that. Like, that's where the ratings power came from. And the same question, I guess, could be applied to film, where when a, a film is super religious, like Passion of the Christ, you know, it gets an incredible amount of it religious people who are going to see it. They're and, grateful. And They're on, so grateful to right. have a and movie like that. And it becomes like, it becomes a big deal. Yeah. 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 Being something that no atheists watch won't kill a television show because there are not that many atheists in the United States of America. Yeah. The next time uh, you're able to vote for one, let me know. Right? Like, well, we, not... I think we voted for quite a few of them. They just won't let but us. We, they just like, won't say not, so. Right? It's the idea that like, oh, God, but how are we going to get the atheist viewers? Like, that doesn't matter. That's not a big enough block. But we do have we do have enough Americans where I feel like being too religious is a turnoff. So I think there's a difference between a show being religious and a show depicting religiosity. Right. Right. And I think Touched by an Angel, I would categorize as the former, and Jane the Virgin, I would categorize as the yes. latter. I would say that actually, I was about to say I would propose a three tier system of religiosity, and at the top, it would be shows that have a worldview wherein there is some kind of higher power, like where that's endorsed by the show. Mm-hmm. And then level two is shows in which people who have faith and regularly practice it on screen are shown every week, and it's part of the culture. And in order to watch the show, you accept that without judgment. Like, the show doesn't seem to be having an opinion on it one way or another. It's almost like a a journalistic or repertorial. Friday Night Lights is a great example of that. Like, I don't see... I, I don't have any impression of Friday Night Lights as necessarily validating the idea that God has an opinion on who wins the football game or who ends up with who. But there is a lot of praying on the show. There's a lot of talk of Jesus about, you know, on the show. And that's because that's the culture. And then at the bottom level of it are shows that are not not particularly religious. Like, they don't seem to be interested in religion, except when maybe once in a while a priest or a rabbi or a nun or or somebody or some kid wants to go to church who never expressed an interest in it before and then they deal with it in a self-contained episode and then they go back to having really no awareness of or interest in in religion. Or it can be used as a character quirk, like with Sally Langston on Scandal or Danny Castellano on The Mindy Project, where or even (laughs) Kenneth on 30 Rock, like where it becomes a part of like, oh, that is what informs their character. The mom on Blackish actually yeah. is a good example of that too, yeah. Yeah, she's a good one. And even even Stephen Colbert, you know. <laughs> I like that we consider him a character. <laughs> he, well, he was he kind, kind of. He kind of was, yeah. But then it's almost like it can become a joke. If I could make a wish list, I'm I'm always interested in seeing characters on TV who have like a profound devotional experience because I think it tells you a lot about what they think of as important and how they situate themselves in a chaotic universe. And like I'm not interested in being proselytized to, but I am always interested in how people orient their lives. Yeah. And in different shows, that's going to be relevant in different ways and sometimes not at all relevant and sometimes very. But, you know, I think you learn a lot about a character by watching them think and be serious and take something as a very important part of themselves or realize that they don't take it as seriously as the person they're sitting next to and that they wish they did or that, gosh, am I taking it so much more seriously than everyone else? Am I the outlier? Right. Yeah, and like, I feel like Jane the Virgin deals with that really well where you constantly see her struggling with things that are so a part of herself in ways where the show could be judgmental. It's not where you understand exactly where she's coming from when right. she's making certain decisions. You're like, oh, she wants to keep the baby, even though maybe any other person would not want to keep the baby. We understand completely why she would. 
Yeah. There's a way in which um, TV shows can sort of eat their cake and have it too at the religious characters, and that is if they show religiosity as a character trait and they establish what the rules are of like how to be a good Christian, how to be a good Jew, a good Muslim according to this character, then you then you can confront them with situations where their faith is tested or, or when they do things out of loyalty to their friends, their family, their government, whatever, that go against their religious beliefs and then you've got a dramatic conflict and that's mm. that's fun to solve. And and the and the show doesn't necessarily have to have an opinion on one way or the other on whether or not there's a God or a heaven or what have you. In that sense, that's a well that I wish more shows would dip into only if they're capable of doing it in an intelligent way. Like the worst case scenario is a show that has no particular religious vision of any kind. And then, you know, five or six episodes into season three or four, they'll introduce a a hypocritical preacher who's only in town to steal everyone's money. And like, that's the only time you ever see a religious character or or he's a serial killer. Like a true meaning of Christmas episode. Yeah. 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 Those are always jarring. It's funny you mentioned that. Christmas episodes suddenly shows become religious that aren't normally religious a lot of times during their Christmas episodes. And it's like, you give me a break. Like, it's you so have weird. no opinion on this. I watch you the rest of the year. I know that you don't care about this. Stop pandering, really. You know, we've been talking mostly about Christian characters. I think Brooklyn Bridge did a really good job of depicting Jewish characters. Yeah. And that's a show I really like. And I know my dad listens to the podcast, and that's his favorite show, like, ever. So, <laughs> yeah. shout out to my dad. Uh, I thought that did a good job of depicting how young people and their parents and their grandparents all existed in the same religious tradition and maybe take those practices differently, treat that practice differently, right? And I think that's an experience a lot of people probably have is that their religious identity and cultural identity, while technically the same as their parents and grandparents, plays out very differently in their lived experience. Sometimes in interesting ways, sometimes in alienating ways for all parties. I always want to see how characters are. I want more like richly developed, thoughtfully articulated characters. And I think religiosity and whatever that means, whether it's a character describing you know, I was raised Catholic and I'm not anymore. Or, gosh, I was raised Protestant and then I found this. Or, you know, yeah, my family's Jewish. But, like, all of those stories, I think, tell us a lot about and, and can show us a lot about, like, an interesting character. I'm always on board for that. Mad Men did an excellent job of that. They had, like, 30, 31 different flavors of religiosity on that <laughs> show. It was really – it was great. And and Peggy in conflict with her staunchly Catholic family and what that meant. And, and Don, there was this very strong strain going all the way through the run of the show with Don Draper's relationship to evangelical Christianity, which not only came out in the flashbacks and in the, and in the stories about his family, but also in the way that he spoke. Like he spoke like a preacher. And you could tell he was somebody who had been around people making speeches at a pulpit and, and, and people who spoke in biblical language. Like some of his greatest pitches sound almost like extracts from the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And sometimes he would seem to become guided by voices, as you would say, when he was you know going on a rant. I also think Don's relationship with Judaism is a big part of the show, certainly in his relationship with Rachel Mencken. And especially Absolutely. in season one, when they talk about having a homeland and that kind of stuff, that's a huge thread. That said, I... I Like Mad Men, given the cultural relevance of church going, particularly in New York at the time, that's not a very religious show. You know, like Mm -hmm. most of those characters would be bigger participants in like a faith oriented community system than I think was depicted. Not because they were saying like they aren't, but I think we just didn't get to, you know, we We didn't didn't spend necessarily that much time with Ken Cosgrove or something. Right. That's true. And yeah, there may have been points where, you know, Roger was forced to go to church for business reasons and struggled to stay awake. Yeah, you know, know, stuff like that. Uh, 
I think probably would have come up. Matt, going back to what you said earlier about religion being used to present a character with a conflict, I feel like that's a good transition point to The Leftovers, which in this second season we're introduced to this new family, the Murphys, and they all seem to have varying views on religion. And the father, John, he seems to be a big non-believer. We ran an interview with Reza Aslan, who is you know, a religious scholar, and he's a consulting producer on the show. And he was talking about that scene where we see him put his hand down the drain. And you see him kind of, he's superstitious. He's not a believer, but you kind of see him have this moment of like, it's presenting him as coming up against that feeling of not believing, but feeling that there's something that could happen. Yes. Yeah. So I thought that was an excellent scene. And for people who who haven't watched the show, the premise is that 2% of the world's population has disappeared in this rapture-like occurrence. And the first season took place in Mapleton, New York. And the new season opens in Jardin, Texas, which is the only town that didn't lose any people during this sudden departure, as they call it. Let's just talk about the show a little generally first, because I think this is a show that, you know, it's kind of reset itself in this new season. And Margaret, you wrote about how you were way more interested in this season than you were in the first. And oh. Yeah, I found the first season to be like extremely frustrating. And then so far in the second season, so obviously one episode has aired and I've seen the next two and I won't spoil anything about it other than to say that I found them very interesting and really just like fully realized. What do you think changed from the first season? The show kind of got out of its own way a little bit. You know, season one had so much violence, and I understand why that was important to the story that they were trying to tell. It's just not something that interests me particularly. And, you know, I think as the characters themselves move farther in time from the sudden departure, that immediate bafflement abates. And so the kind of stage of grief that everyone is in has changed. And it's much more interesting to me to see how characters move forward. And season two has a lot more drive. I think we're seeing much Mm -hmm. more active participation from all of our characters and a lot less, you know, rending of garments kind of scenarios. Right, right. I also had, like, mixed feelings about Guilty Remnant, which is Mm -hmm. the sort of cult, I guess, although it's not clear that it meets like the sort of psychological criteria of cult behavior, but... I I always describe them as an order. Yeah, (laughs) so that's the one that's with like all the people who wear weirdly dingy, all white clothes and smoke and don't talk and and then also are like extremely chaotic and really harm the people in their community by putting those dummies in their houses. I mean... They're like jokers. They're like a bunch of jokers. They're like a band of jokers from Batman. Uh, They're they're really like... like, It's like psychological terrorism. So initially we saw them as like victims, I think, in season one because people were extremely cruel and and, one of them was murdered and it was very upsetting uh, to watch. But then as the season went on, they also became far less sympathetic, certainly. Uh, And there's aspects... The Guilty Remnant is present in season two in slightly different ways. So with the new season, we center on a black family... And I wanted to play a clip here that focuses on John Murphy, the father, who I thought was just phenomenal. He's played by an actor named Kevin Carroll. And this is a scene where the Murphys are having dinner with the Garveys. And it's a very unsettling moment. Uh, that must have been fun to come home to. Well, I was in prison. Oh, yeah. Well, how long were you there for? Six years, 119 days. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> they think you're kidding. <laughs> oh, sorry. No, uh, I really was. Travis County Unit. Go ahead. Go 
ahead and ask. What? What I did. What everybody wants to know. Oh, that's none of our business. What'd you do? Hmm. Attempted murder. Mm-hmm. What happened? Well, didn't try hard enough. Happy birthday to you. So I, I looked up Kevin Carroll a little, and it looks like he's been acting for the past 20 years, but they've all been bit parts, like literally one episode on TV shows for 20 years. It's crazy to think that he's finally gotten like this role. lead role. Yeah, and yeah. he's so he was so good. Yeah, yeah. And I think one thing that kept me watching throughout the first season and kept me interested was just the acting on this show. I feel like everyone really brings it in this way that is like Justin Theroux, Carrie Coon, Amy Brenneman, even when she's not speaking. Like as much as the show has its flaws, I think the acting has kept it interesting to me. And what made this premiere episode so great was that we have a whole new cast of characters and they're all immediately compelling. I actually said something like that just the other night that that one of the things I like about the show is the sense of the mix of excitement and gratitude that radiates off the actors because they have been given challenging material to yeah. play. like And not just challenging in the sense of in the moment of the scene, but perhaps being asked to do things that they are not normally asked to do or maybe have never been asked to do before. And that's cool. It's very cool to see. And certainly there's more of that this season. I felt like the show really started to come together in the last maybe three, four episodes of the first season mm-hmm. where they, it started to figure out not just what it was about and how to tell that story, but also it was developing a certain cinematic vocabulary and taking more risks with how it told the story. And there would be long sequences with no dialogue where it's just music and sound effects and sometimes no no sound effects, just practically you're watching a silent movie. And the situations, I think it was either the second to the last or the last episode, there was not a word of dialogue for the first 18 minutes of this episode. And then there was this whole virtually wordless sequence in the in the climax of season one with Kevin going into that burning house, which was amazing, amazing. And uh, the opening of season two with the flashback to, I guess, uh, cave people times uh <laughs> well yeah that's yeah that's that was like, to talk about that was one of the most audacious openings i've ever seen on a tv yeah. show but coming back from season two it's like what it was like i i was ransacking my memory like what's the last time i've seen a season two show begin in such a gutsy way and i think the only thing i came up with was um twin peaks when it came back for its second season and it was deliberately messing with your head like like it, it had ended on a cliffhanger and when you end on a cliffhanger you immediately want to know what happens next and it's like we'll get to that yeah <laughs> well, i mean we'll get to that hold nothing. on i'll say season two of lost starts yeah. with oh yeah like desmond <clears throat> yeah and like i remember watching that and being like what that said this was a completely different level from from yeah other shows and it it, it worked in such a beautiful way because it it starts to feel like you're going to get a better sense of the mystery behind the show. It's making it incredibly, like, ingrained into the geography of the show. Oh, I didn't have that feeling at all. I guess, like, I... Damon Lindelof has been extremely explicit about the fact that they'll never explain what caused or precipitated the sudden departure. And I am completely absent any need to know. Like, I think, I, right. I guess I took this I, sort of cavewoman origin story as, like, 
you know, the world is full of unexplained disasters and yes. your desire to make sense of them is part of nature and also ultimately fruitless. I think you're right. And it's I also think, the reason religion was invented. I think we're never going to get answers, but I like that sense of mystery being there. So the episode is called Axis Mundi? Mundi? Mundi. Uh, Mundi. Axis Mundi. And Reza Aslan was talking about how that means an, is an ancient idea of land being sacred for mysterious reasons. And it this opening kind of sets that up because you you know that this land that they... Miracle is sacred for a reason, and we're only going to see how that affects the town. And you see that it goes way back to this cave woman. I guess I just but took it, it as such a feeling that, that that would be anywhere. And that there's, where is the place? Oh, the on, place is everything, Margaret. That, no, but, <laughs> but, but uh, that obviously, like, Darden has become this sort of nexus, and then people assume that there's this miracle afoot. And I think this is a show that has an attitude that there's sort of like no causes and effects that in a linear capacity. And the kinds of people who did disappear don't have any clear connection to being much more good or much more, right? They're, they're right. not. There's so that's no... what Matt Jameson is, is struggling to understand is, you know, this idea of why were certain people spared and other people were not. And then on the other hand, you've got the, you've got the, guilty, the, gil- the guilty remnants who are basically saying, stop wasting your precious mental energy and your breath asking why. Well, I also think it's not clear that being spared is better, right? There are certainly people who think that having been, you know, raptured or whatever, sucked away, whatever it is, that that those people are perhaps the beneficiaries. Yeah. And that, you know, the struggle to find meaning in being left behind is is the tension that you're experiencing. I get like I thought the opening sequence was staggering and for a while it was like Come on, and then you were just sort of like, "Oh wow, okay, you know what? Yeah. Never mind, I'm on board." Roll because with it. Because it was, yeah. it was, it was very, it was just extremely captivating. But it had... and the way it transitioned from the past to the present oh, was, was beautiful. Great, yeah, great. But I guess I took it to mean like this is everywhere. This could be anywhere. This is anyone. Being somebody who's experienced loss or tremendous confusion is not a unique experience. That's and what that I get out of it. Universal experience. I think that's a a great thing to get out of it. I think that. You're right. And I think that's what Damon Lindelof is hoping for, these larger themes of loss. But he still has this kind of mysterious (laughs) element running through the show that, you know, there's there are little things everywhere that are all supposed to mean something, whether we know what they mean or not. God, I I hope hope he's not putting it together. Yeah, I hope it's not. Please, Damon Lindelof, if you're listening to this, don't explain anything. I don't think he's going to explain anything. No matter how much they press you, don't. (laughs) Please, I'm just personally, personally don't. I'm begging you. (laughs) Does any part of you worry, though, that it's heading it? Like, the reason why I'm saying all this is because the episode ends with this body of water gone, and it's like... I just flash back to Lost and, you know, the island and everything. Well, there may that. be other raptures. I mean, I say that as somebody who I don't know where the show is going. But, uh, but, but you know, I felt like it's like Margaret was saying, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth. But I got a very strong sense of in that cave people flashback that this was a show. It's a way of establishing that this is a show about uh, grief and loss in case you didn't get the memo in season one. And it's not just about the rapture, and that's like it felt like it was preemptively trying to avoid a uh, 
you know, Sopranos truthers situation where the, where people become obsessed with explaining what the rapture is and what is the nature of the rapture and looking for clues and trying to piece it all together like it's a puzzle and you know which is the stupidest most pointless way to watch a great show. Real, I'm just telling you, it's dumb. I, don't do it. I agree. I just I think it's going to happen. <laughs> I'm someone. It is going to happen, but like, <laughs> let's not encourage. I it. will say I didn't. Fifteen re- <laughs> reasons why this means that, and like, shut up. Like I'm a big uh, like over obsessor in general and I do like seek out clues and I was certainly like a huge lost like conspiracy theorist and X-Files person and stuff like that. I just don't have that sensation for the leftovers at all. Part of that is their adamance that that you shouldn't do that and that that is fruitless. And part of it is that that is so the least interesting aspect of the show to me. You know, I think and this is going to sound sort of touchy feely, but, you know, I'd be surprised if you met a person who wasn't sometimes confused by the way the world worked and someone who didn't feel like, you know, that they had been touched by like a, a meaningful loss. And, and if you if you're somebody who hasn't, I'll say sadly that that just means not yet that, you know, if if you have had your whole life and everything made perfect sense, I don't know what kind of life that is. I think it's if anyone is having a thoughtful experience of of taking stock of what goes on in in literal life, you don't even have to get metaphysical about it. In the day-to-day existence, there are things that are often confusing, often devastating, often delightful or surprising or serendipitous. And there's a day that you were running late, but the subway came, both subways, you transferred, you made it on time. And there are days where you left with plenty of time and shit happens. And days when you thought of the person just before you got a text message from them and days when you thought of this person and Googled them and it turned out that they had died a couple of years ago and you just didn't know. That like these things happen and there's the desire to make sense of them I understand, but that's that's if all it is. If only I had done this. That's if all only it is. I had it's just that. a desire that that there's yeah. no causes and effects to that desire. That that desire has to exist on its own. And I think what the leftovers really drives at is this idea that, you know, there are some things that are in our control, and and the way we treat each other, and and the way you can be decent and to show someone you appreciate them, or to take care of them, or to accept someone taking care of you. That's in your control, and everything else, not really. And that there are people who are going to say, this is true for me. And you look at that and say, that's not true for me at all. And you can both be right. And and that's just sort of how it goes. And this is not me throwing my hands up and being like, well, the world spins on. But like, I think dwelling in this idea of what caused this or how can I prevent it? Yeah. Like here lies madness, you know? And, and I think we see that clearly on The Leftovers, that here does lie madness. We see that madness very clearly displayed. But that, that ultimate, like, devastation of realizing that however much you desire to make sense of things, that that's going to be harmful, that, that you have to just sort of let that desire be a part of your life and and set it free that the you guilty can't remnants that. are the guilty remnants are part of the problem in that respect because what they're trying to do even though they would never characterize it this way is trying to force everybody to think of the event in the way that they do. You know, rather yeah. than leaving them alone to to struggle with it in their own way. It's like they're telling people there's a wrong way to grieve. Mm-hmm. Here's the right way to grieve, and we're going to make you grieve in that way, and you're going to think what you what we want you. You know, we you'll think what we believe you should think, and feel what you believe we should feel at the moment when we think it should happen. And tough shit if you don't like it, which is a really fascistic way to deal with that that kind of issue. But I, I took the I took the opening of season two as an example of how this always has happened and always will happen, and the and the the book ending with the. Uh, the event at that very same quarry with the water mm-hmm. suddenly disappearing and it seems like okay here we go is it more you know we're going to have more rapturing what's happening here what happened to all those kids 
Will we ever find out? Is it going to be a picnic at Hanging Rock type situation or what? It's a great example. The show is a great example of this thing that we talk about periodically on, on this podcast of some of the great shows in the history of television are ones that lift ordinary situations out of their usual context and deposit them in this alien context where every all the usual connections, all the usual associations are severed because they've relocated the context of what the characters are going through. And this show does that. I mean, this show is like it, it comes up with this enormous and so far unexplained metaphor for sudden catastrophic loss. And you can draw all kinds of infer- inferences from it. And, you know, I immediately, of course, and like a lot of people saw it as a parable of 9-11 or another disaster like that. Like what happens when an entire community is devastated or an entire country? But it's not just that either. It's, it's uh, you know, there's the big loss, there's the big spectacular loss, but then woven within it are all of these smaller ones. And the meanings aren't always what you think they're going to be. And sometimes the, the struggle to glom a particular meaning onto an event and make it stick is itself counterproductive. One of the things I really like about this season is that, you know, not all bad things are somehow connected to the sudden departure, right? Like pain existed before that and people died before that and there were natural disasters before that and divorces before, right? That, That everyone had, you know, the sort of full experience of the human endeavor before that too. And so afterwards, people's, you know, confusion and sorrows and despair may or may not be connected to the sudden departure, right? right? And I think that that's part of... Well, you have Liv Tyler's character, right, who lost her mom the day before, but it's yeah. somehow wrapped detail. up in it. Yeah. I love that detail. And she almost seems like she's... There are times when it seems like she's kind of upset that it wasn't on that big day. Yeah. You know? It doesn't make sense to her, in a way. No. I mean, I think, I think the whole show is this sort of denial of linear causes and effects. If this happens, then this happens is not something that the show believes in, right? There's no domino that gets hit and then everything falls, right? It's that someone had to pee in the middle of the night and she's the only surviving person from her community. But then she's not the surviving person from her community after all. Her baby is. Or maybe not. Maybe the baby dies too. Like, who knows? Right? Like, that that this could be the end. And it's all... The only reason it even had an extra five days was because she had to pee. Right? Like, there's... (laughs) Right? Right. Like, that... The sense that there is some big plan that you can decipher. Well, and this whole idea of, like, there's two disasters separated by presumably thousands and thousands of years at the same quarry in Texas... Is there a connection between them? Maybe, but what if there isn't? It didn't strike me as a huge disaster. I thought it was a small, like, well, it is, but I mean, in the lives of the characters, but yeah. And there is an overtone of um, just the way it's photographed of a biblical miracle or curse or something. Like, it feels like it's a supernatural event. You have a snake. Yes, you have a snake, and you you know you have you have earthquakes. You have it's there's something very mysterious about the way it's photographed, and also. Yeah, the you know the vulture circling in the sky even before the event happens, which is interesting, as if it knows, you know. Um, I think we'll probably be talking about this for yes, the next couple. Of stay weeks. tuned. Well, it's great. Yeah, 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 it's great. But but ultimately, I I just really hope that the show doesn't give in to the unbelievable, especially in this day and age, internet pressure to explain everything and put things they, together. I'm not worried. For once in my, for the, this is maybe for the once. only thing in the whole universe I can say this about. I'm not worried. I think the, the mystery. I'm really happy to hear you say that. <laughs> I hope, I, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. All right. Well, that's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. 
please email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com. Our producer is Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior producer is Laura Mayer. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. If you like the show, tell your friends and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellefant. I'm Margaret Lyons, and you can find me on Twitter at Marge in Charge. I'm Matt Zoller-Seitz. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller-Seitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.